Will you turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, Matthew chapter 13? Matthew chapter 13. And we read from verse 47. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things they said to him? Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his word. And we've been looking at the the parables in the Gospel of Matthew, and we come to this one, Uh, which is a bit unusual, the parable of the net. It's not one that you hear frequently uh, preached on or expounded. It's very similar uh, to the uh, parable of the wheat and the weeds. And for that reason, a lot of commentators just skip over it, that it's teaching the same point, that there will be a separation at the end of the age. The wheat uh, and the, the weeds will be separated, one brought into the barn, and the other uh, uh, burnt in the fire. And likewise, uh, these fish caught in the net, some will be thrown into the fiery furnace and some will be taken home. Indeed, my favorite New Testament commentator, William Henriksen, is almost kind of embarrassed when it comes to this parable. He, he kind of skips over it, feeling that it doesn't need a mention at all because it's basically making the same point as the parable of the Uh, the wheat and the weeds. Our Lord never wasted words, and a closer uh, study of the parable reveals that it's not exactly the same as the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. In verse 38, when Jesus explains the parable of the weeds, he says, the field is the world. That the field is this world in which we live, where wheat and weeds, wheat and tares grow together, where Christians and non-Christians live side by side. And then at the harvest, the harvesters separate the wheat from the weeds. The weeds are burnt and the wheat is brought safely into the barn. And likewise, at the end of the age, the believer and the unbeliever will be separated and the unbeliever will be thrown into what Jesus calls the fiery furnace and the righteous will be brought into the barn where uh, they will shine like the sun. The parable of the weeds is not a picture of the world in the church, but the church in the world. Now, you will notice that the parable of the net is different. It's not the fish of the sea that are separated, but it's the fish that are caught in the net that are separated. So it's not the fish in all of the sea that are separated. It's only the fish in the net that are separated. Now, what is Jesus teaching here? Is he teaching that the uh, that just in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, there's going to be this separation at the end of the age, or is he teaching something 
more detailed and more significant. Well, look at verse 52. I think verse 52 is the key to understanding this parable. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I remember that first rule of real estate, as the Americans would say, location, location, location. The first rule of exegesis, of understanding the Bible, is location, location, location. You've got to understand uh, what's being said in the context. And here Jesus is talking about the scribes. Now, he's not talking about the scribes that he was so critical of. He's talking about his disciples. And he says, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven... So these are new covenant scribes. These are new covenant teachers. Is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So he's speaking to the disciples, and he's saying that you're going to exercise this, this teaching ministry. You're going to bring out of your treasure house what is new as well as what is old. Uh, it's not just going to be uh, Old Testament revelation. It's going to be New Testament revelation. It's just not going to be the Old Covenant. It's going to be the New Covenant as well. The followers of Jesus are called to a, a, a new ongoing ministry to cast their teaching into the world. And it's in that context that this parable of the net is spoken, spoken. That the net represents the influence and the result of the ministry of the disciples, these new covenant scribes in the world, as they teach both from the old and both from the new. The task of the disciples of Jesus is that through their ministry, they catch men and women for Christ. So this, this parable is about evangelism. It's about influencing for the kingdom. It's about fishing uh, for uh, converts in our world. I noticed three things just about uh, the parable with me. Notice, first of all, remembering the context is the ministry of the disciples. Notice, first of all, the influence of their ministry. Look at verse uh, 47. And the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. On the Sea of Galilee, there were three kinds of uh, fishing traditionally employed. The first was the line and the hook, uh, which uh, you cast a line into the sea with a hook on the end, and you caught one fish at a time. This was the uh, method that Peter used. You remember when he found a four drachma coin in the uh, fish of a mouth that was used to pay the temple tax. So that's the kind of fishing that most of us are acquainted with. You have a line, you have a hook, and you have bait, and you catch one fish at a time. Although I remember as a boy going out to fish off Briggs Boy, which is just off uh, a groom sport there, and having six feathers on a line and pulling up eight fish 
at a time, uh, just hitting a shoal of fish, and, and the fish were getting entangled, actually, in, in the line. But traditionally, one fish, one line, one rod, one f- line, and one fish at a time. Then there was a small held, handheld net, which was weighted, and the fishermen, uh, the fisherman would actually would either weigh it out into the water, wait for a shoal of fish to pass him and then drop the net over them and pull it tight, or he might even cast his net uh, from uh, the boat and pull the, um, uh, the fish, the caught fish, the trapped fish on board. Now, by far the most effective and productive method of fishing was the third, and that was the drag net. This required a team of fishermen, for sometimes the net uh, could be over half a mile in length. It was stretched between two boats, or perhaps a boat and the shore, and it was pulled in a large circle. It was the, it had floats in the top, it was weighted at the bottom, and as it was pulled round and closed, it would trap uh, all the fish that stood in its path. It was eventually pulled ashore, and the catch was certain. Now, it is the, the dragnet that Jesus is referring to in this parable. Now, what does that tell us about the influence of the disciples, these New Testament scribes, as far as it comes, uh, concerns their ministry? Well, first of all, I think it tells us that their ministry must be uh, implemented. This parable employs a hunting motif. Fishermen go out to fish. The influence of the gospel, of the ministry of the disciples of Jesus, was not to be merely passive. There is a passive influence uh, from the gospel, from believers. Jesus described Christians and their presence in the world as salt and light. Uh, The world is a better place because of their presence. They preserved morally by uh, the Christian saltiness, and they're illuminated spiritually by the Christian's light. But a Christian's responsibility, the disciples' responsibility, didn't end there. They had to uh, go actively to pursue the unbeliever to trawl for souls. Do you remember the calling of uh, Peter and Andrew by the Lord Jesus? Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Leave your nets. No longer fish for fish. You are now to fish for men. That there is this um, uh, uh, responsibility in the calling of the disciples to be proactive in going out to fish for men and women and boys and girls. So the disciples, and by implication the Christian, is required by their Lord to vigorously and actively engage in fishing for men. The Christian must witness. He must evangelize. He must broadcast his faith. His influence is not merely passive, but he is called to be active as well. He is to sweep across the sea of the world, gathering in succeeding generations for his Lord. Evangelism is an integral part of the Christian's calling. Therefore, Jesus commanded that little embryo church, uh, fearful 
about the prospect of what lay ahead of them. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever uh, he has uh, commanded. And surely that's a natural thing. If we have been delivered from sin and judgment and hell, surely we'll want to uh, take that message that transformed us into a world like us uh, uh, was peri- is perishing. There's a wonderful promise in that uh, call of Jesus to the disciples, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you. There's something transformative in the uh, call of Jesus that he will make them fishers of men. So the parable of the net was intended to uh, instruct the disciples about their ministry, and it was to be, and their ministry was to be implemented actively, but it was also to be um, implemented indiscriminately. Notice again, verse 47, the net caught all kinds of fish. In other words, all kinds of species were caught in this net. I don't think that's referring to the good kinds and the bad kind, but simply all kinds of fish, both good and bad, were caught. And I think Jesus is making a very important point and a very salient point to these disciples who were steeped in the traditions of Judaism and had a very parochial understanding of of mission and what their task was uh, and simply saw their their field of service in terms of, of Jews. He is saying that all kinds of fish are to be included in this uh, kind of, of uh, endeavor that uh, the, the call of the gospel is to extend to all peoples uh, of the world. Up to that point, uh, the focus of the ministry of the Word was upon uh, Israel and the people of God. Uh, God had said to Amos in Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Now that promise would be fulfilled that was originally given to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That the gospel and its influence was to be indiscriminate and was to embrace all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, white and black, unionists and nationalists, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, middle class, working class. The disciples were to be indiscriminate when it came to fishing for men. And you know then from uh, your acquaintance with the book of Acts how, how significant that mountain of prejudice was in the hearts of the disciples that they had to overcome so that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. And how Peter receives that vision uh, in Acts uh, chapter 10 of the sheep uh, being lowered with all kinds of animals on it, and then uh, right on the heels of that, uh, represented us from Cornelius's house come, a Gentile house, and how the, the uh, Spirit is poured out upon uh, the, uh, the Gentiles as well, and uh, that's confirmed by them speaking in tongues, and speaking in tongues was an indication that the gospel had to go out to all the language groups, all the peoples, 
uh, of, of the world. So their uh, influence was to be active, it was to be indiscriminate. And then I think in this parable, a very simple point, cooperative. The outstanding feature of the dragnet method of fishing was not only the size of the catch, but the number of people that were involved in the catch. It took two boats unless one person remained on the shore. Each boat had at least one rower, perhaps two, depending on the weight of the net, and at least two others to handle the nets. I think Jesus is emphasizing a very important point, that in the task of evangelism, it's not simply entrusted to a disciple individually, but the disciples collectively, not only to Christians individually, but the church collectively, that to be successful fishers of men, we need to cooperate together. We need to work together for the extension of Christ's kingdom. This is a repeated emphasis in Paul's body motif, that all the gifts that are necessary for the expansion of the church do not reside in one individual. We have all different gifts. We have all uh, different callings. But those gifts cooperate together to see the kingdom of God advanced. And that's why it's important not only to be a member of a, a church, but also to be actively involved in that church. So, the influence of their ministry uh, from the parable, it's to be uh, uh, implemented actively, indiscriminately, and cooperatively. Secondly, I want you, and I think this is the main point, the effects of their ministry. The disciples, through their ministries, were endeavor by all possible means to catch men and women, boys and girls, for God. They were to crawl, uh, trawl, not crawl, trawl for souls. But says Jesus, you must remember that your ministry will always have a mixed response. That there will be good fish and bad fish caught in the gospel net. And on the day of judgment, the, uh, the, the type of, of fish, whether they're good or bad, will ultimately be revealed. Jesus, with brutal realism, warns his disciples that not all that were caught in their net, that not all that they ministered to will be truly converted. Now, we all know uh, there are false professors, people who say they're Christians, but they're not really Christians. How do you know if a person is genuinely converted? How do you know if a person is uh, truly a Christian? Well, you know that by their fruit, don't you? Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. He says, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, no. Each produces after its kind. And uh, if a person has been truly rooted in the faith, the fruit that they produce, if they're rooted in Christ, they produce Christianity. They produce the fruits of holiness. They produce the fruits of a transformed life. By their fruit, you shall know them. You know them by their appetite. Uh, Peter says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. That when a baby is born, there is a, a, a natural instinct and affection uh, for the breast of its mother. 
It, it just desires to receive food, milk, nourishment. And if a person professes faith and there's no uh, inclination or uh, a desire to grow in their faith, to mature in their faith, to receive the, uh, the word of God, there, there must be a question over the reality of their conversion by their fruit, by their appetite, by prayer. Someone described prayer as the Christian's vital breath. And if there's no prayer, one has to question if there is truly a, a work done in that person's heart. Do you remember when Ananias was told to go and uh, 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 meet Saul, this great persecutor of the church? And naturally, he's a little apprehensive and, and nervous about meeting this man because his reputation had preceded him. And, uh, and the Lord says uh, concerning Saul, behold, he prays. I presumably, as a Pharisee, he prayed on numerous occasions, perhaps three to four times a day, those set formal prayers that Pharisees read. But there was something different about this, this man and his prayers. This prayer indicated life. It was, it was like this, the, the, the breath of a newborn baby. It was the, the cry of a newborn baby. Behold, he prays by attitude. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Whoever does not uh, love does not know God. Well, what could be clearer than that? First John 4 verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God. You know, people talk about grumpy old Christians. That's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? How can you be a grumpy old Christ lover. Love, love for the people of God is a distinguishing mark of the regenerate life. And then perseverance. If a person uh, goes up like um, a rocket and comes down like a stick in their profession, that's only a matter of days. One has to question about the, the reality of their conversion. Well, but Jesus is going further than that. You know, sometimes it's very easy to identify the, the false professor, but on other occasions it's more difficult. And Jesus is saying that only at the end of the age will this true separation take place. Will you be able to see and tell who is an imposter and who is real? Turn, turn back with me to, to Matthew chapter 7, to the Sermon on the Mount. I, I find this one of the most sobering passages in all of the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones called these words the most solemn and solemnizing words ever spoken in the world. So you have Matthew 7, you have the little section in verse 15 about the tree and the fruit by their fruit you will recognize them in verse 20. And then verse 21 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and do mighty works? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." 
Now, here are people who come uh, before the throne in the final judgment, and they have so much going for them. They're orthodox in their doctrine. They address the one who's seated on the throne by the title Lord, and in this context, they're um, attributing to him full deity. They acknowledge that the judge of all the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, is, is God of very God. But it's not a dead orthodoxy because the repetition of that little word Lord indicates um, uh, um, uh, 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 passion and, and, and uh, 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 emotion. Um, wherever you find that the repetition of a, um, a name in Scripture, it's, it carries, it, it's, it's um, a Jewish way of conveying emotion. So, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Martha, Martha, uh, that repetition. And here's these people, they're addressing the judge of all the earth as Lord, Lord. There's feeling there, there's passion there, there's, there's uh, devotion there. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? These people are, are, are gifted. They, they take the words of God. They speak the very words of God. They bring the word of God to bear in a situation. They're preachers of the word. Uh, prophesy in your name. Cast out demons. Is it possible to cast out demons and yet be a reprobate? Yes. Well, Judas cast out demons and was ultimately lost. So they're, they're orthodox in their doctrine, they're zealous in their devotion, they're gifted uh, in service, and yet the Lord says to them, listen to this, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. Now, you know that word know in Scripture is more than intellectual apprehension. It's a, it's a uh, it's a relationship word. Adam knew his wife Eve, and here is Jesus on his throne in the day of judgment, and he's sending these people who profess to know him. He's sending them to a place of outer darkness because he never knew them. There was no intimacy. There was no relationship. There was no communion. There was no fellowship between him and them. So how do we apply this? Well, let's apply it like this. Let's apply it evangelistically. So you go out and you, you seek to witness and to evangelize and the church engages in mission and the gospel net goes out and a number of people profess faith. And uh, some of them show good signs initially, but then they, they fall away. Has the gospel failed? No, it's exactly what Jesus said. The good and the bad fish are gathered in uh, together, and they're going to be separated ultimately uh, in the final judgment. It's, it's the very nature of evangelism, this dragnet, uh, the gospel going out into the world, that there will be non-Christians who, who are brought in and who profess faith. And we mustn't get discouraged about that. That's a fact. That's a reality. That's what happens. That people profess faith but aren't genuinely converted. So let's apply it then to the church. Is every member of Balamina Baptist Church a Christian? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, every member of Balamina Baptist Church professes to be a Christian, 
But is every member of Balamina Baptist Church actually a Christian? Well, this, this parable would seem to indicate no. That not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. So we can apply it evangelistically. We can apply it to, um, to the church. And then we can apply it, apply it to ourselves. Am I a Christian? Well, I, I can't remember the exact date, but I know over a period of three months, I prayed and I cried to the Lord and I asked him to save me. And at the end of those three months, I believe that I had passed from death to life. But am, am I a Christian? Are you a Christian? Well, if this parable is teaching us anything, surely it's teaching us that we ought to make our own calling and election sure. As Paul says, we, we need to examine ourselves. We need to test ourselves. We need to ask ourselves. Is the, the root of the matter within us? You see, evangelicals have their own form of Protestant absolution. That they remember a time when there were three or four or five or six or 16 or 17 where they trusted the Lord. And then they say to themselves, I'm in. And it doesn't matter how I behave, how I live, how indifferent I am to the Word of God and to the teaching of the Word of God. I am secure. Well, I would suggest to you that's, that's a quite a reckless and a dangerous way to live. But then you say to me, well, well how do I know that I am a Christian? We had an elder in um, a previous church and he says he remembers as a boy uh, of eight or nine, every, every Sunday night going to church and hearing the gospel, he says, I must, I must trust the Lord, trust the Lord. And he, he never knew if he had trusted the Lord um, or, or not, or whether he was sincere or not. And so um, his, he went to his mother and he shared it with his mother. And he says, I don't know if I truly repented back then, and if I truly believed back then. And his mother very wisely said to him, but do you believe now? And are you repenting now? You see, salvation is just not something that happened in the past. It's this ongoing condition. And the mark that you have repented and you have believed is that you do repent and you do believe. So I'm not asking you, you know, way back yonder, did you repent and trust in Jesus? I'm asking you this evening, are you repenting and trusting in Jesus? Because that's the mark of saving faith and that's the mark of salvation. That, that it, it's an ongoing experience, that, it's a, um, that justification is, is not just a... a, a it, it, well, I, that's maybe quite wrong to say that, but it's, it's not just something that happens in the past. It's, it's an ongoing, abiding condition. Do you, do you believe in Jesus? 
John Newton said, when he gets to heaven, there'll be three great surprises. He says, some I thought would be there, won't be there. Some I thought wouldn't be there, will be there. And the greatest surprise of all is that I myself uh, will be there. So I'm asking you then, I, I, I hope I'm not unsettling anybody. I tried to give confidence this morning that, that he who is held by the Father and the Son will never be let go. But are you, are you trusting in Jesus now? Do you know the ministry of the Spirit in your heart and life, subduing that sinfulness, breaking that stubbornness, convicting that prayerlessness, rekindling that loveliness of the Lord Jesus? Do you, do you love him now? It's not um, the message of the cross, says Paul, is not simply... Um, uh, is foolishness to those who are perishing, it's, but to those who not have been saved, but who are being saved. It is the power of God. The influence of their ministry, the effects of their ministry, and then the test of their, their ministry. Look very quickly at verses 48 and, uh, and 49, Matthew 13, 48 and 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Perhaps uh, no doctrine is harder to accept emotionally than the doctrine of hell, yet uh, it's one of the most frequently taught doctrines in Scripture, and it's one uh, that is most frequently taught by the Lord Jesus. And here Jesus mentions it again, and he speaks of the fiery furnace uh, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of terrible torment. And scholars disagree and uh, fall out over whether the fires of hell are literal or symbolic. Now, whether Jesus employed this figure of fire literally or symbolic, uh, symbolically, it, it, it's hard to to know, but one thing is sure. If it is symbolic, the reality then will be even greater. That hell is a place of never dying wrath. Sid Vicious, before he died, was asked what he was looking forward to at the end of his career. And he says, I'm looking forward to death. Death. I'm looking forward to death. When the journalist asked him why he was looking forward to death, he grinned and he said, because hell will be fun. Well, one thing's for sure, that hell will not be fun. So fearsome and so terrible is that punish, punishment that there's this grinding and this um, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's no relief. There's no let up. There's no growing accustomed to it. It's eternal. There's no friendship. There's no fellowship. There's no comfort. There's no isolation. Or there, there's no, uh, it's a place of isolation and a place of outer darkness. Now, the interesting thing about this parable is that some of those end up in hell that were caught in the gospel net. The angels will separate the true believer from the false professor. That description, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and do that? Depart from me, I never knew you. Is it possible that someone 
gathered here this evening who has a profession of faith, who remembers the dead, will ultimately find themselves in hell. That's a sobering thing, the sobering lesson of this parable. It's, it's possible to kiss the gate of heaven and sink into hell. So what is the issue? The issue is this. Am I truly converted? Am I repenting and believing the gospel? Do I love Jesus now? Do I love him now? Am I serving him now? Am I trusting in him now? That's the issue.